Hello, everyone. Regina, welcome to Taboo with Mimi. Thank you so much. I am very excited about this because we're going to talk about something pretty big, which is called divorce. And that no one, I don't know why, really discusses. So please, Regina, tell us what's your story. Yeah, thanks so much. It is my pleasure to be here. I love this topic because I think it's, you know, it kind of overshadows so many people and so much of what happens in society. But so my story is that I am a divorce attorney. I was a divorce attorney for 18 years. And so I was like really embroiled in that toxic world. And then I went through my own divorce. And, you know, when you're dealing with it day in and day out and you're working within the system, you get to know like sort of how it's all going to go. And and I realized that the actual practice of divorce and what we put families through is completely unnecessary. And it sort of becomes like theater in a game. So I had a personal sort of transition myself with my own divorce. And then I had a son who was diagnosed at a young age with a progressive neuromuscular disease. So as he was getting sicker, I really had even less stomach to be involved in the toxic nature of it. Right. And I thought I was going to quit completely. But when I did that, people started coming to me and asking for help. So I created a business called Family Transitions that allows families to literally transition into two households, like really honoring what they've built and moving forward in a way that recognizes, hey, we're actually going to be healthier individuals separate in two households. That doesn't mean we're dismantling our family. We're just transforming it. And it's been fabulous, but it really has at its its foundation training my clients about why divorce is taboo and how if we change our thinking about it, you can really change the outcome for your family as well. Absolutely. And I think it's super relevant to this podcast in particular, but I think it's just also super interesting because, yeah, why is divorce so taboo? Maybe you can tell us more about it. I know that you know a lot of the history that like behind this, but just in terms of like your personal story, you were saying, how do you think as a divorced woman, your child, like your life change, where you like seeing a different way? Because obviously, I mean, I come from Italy. Italy is a very Christian country, right? So divorce, especially as a woman, is not seeing well. Any, I don't think like, even as a man, but especially as a woman, if you're like a divorced woman, what are your chances you're going to, you know, right? Um, So I'm just wondering, like, how were you perceived as a woman in the society or even like just around you? Like, how did your family take it or stuff like that? Yeah. Well, it's true. You're funny because I'm Italian as well, but, you know, obviously raised in America, but raised very traditional practicing Catholic. And when when I told my mother I was getting divorced, she literally looked at me because my brother and sister had been divorced and remarried previously. She said, who has all three of their children get divorced? And she like, it was more about her and like the perception of what was going to happen with her. And I said, mom, you would not want me living in this situation. And I think so often the religion piece of it is used as, you know, in a very negative way. I've seen it really 
bind families together in a very positive way. And I think if both people have a really positive faith, then it's a fabulous thing. But I've also in my practice seen people use it as a weapon to keep someone really trapped. Like we're not going to do this because this is against my religion and it's a sin. Absolutely. I So I have really, in my personal life, I was like the first person in my social group to get divorced. Since then, I think there's something that has to do with sort of our ages and the number of years we've been married. Since then, many, many people have gotten divorced. And I do think that a lot of people, at least in my social circles, are really trying to make it as positive as it's always going to be stressful and sad, but really allow it to be have a positive outcome for the kids where we're not going to traumatize them and and put them in this really stressful ongoing situation. So I haven't had other than my parents, which that initial reaction, uh, people weren't too judgy. But when I got to the bottom of the situation with my parents and I said, mom, you don't want me living like here's what's going on. And then they really were supportive. And I think the bigger picture, the bigger religious picture, I believe, is that God or the universe, whatever power you believe in, wants you to be your best self. Like they put you here to fulfill a purpose or to be your authentic self. And so often I think that's what happens in our relationships that we don't talk about. It's not a failure. It doesn't mean anyone's a bad person, but we have literally continued to evolve sort of past our relationship or outgrow it in some way. And I think that that can be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just as you said, now when we look at stats and stuff, we see like, oh, divorces increase so much. Like what's going on? And we like, I remember thinking like, oh, do people not want to fight for their relationships anymore? And and then actually when you look a little bit like deeper into it, you actually find out that maybe people wanted to divorce before, but A, they couldn't or B, they were like so afraid of the stigma or the judgment around you that people just stayed in a very toxic relationship, really, not to get divorced. I think that's actually, I mean, there's so many things in like human history that have evolved, but it was the expectation for generations and hundreds and hundreds of years that you could not get divorced. Like that was not even an option. You had to literally petition parliament, which, you know, it's not an easy feat. You know, if you're in England or in, in Europe, it was literally illegal. So it wasn't even an option. So you really made the best you could or made do. And as civilization literally has evolved and we've moved forward into the 21st century, people have started to think much bigger about their role in society and what the role that they want to play. And so often they've come to understand that if their marriage is stifling them in some way, or if, you know, it really becomes emotionally stifling, if someone is constantly not validating you, or you're really not growing together, it can become a really unhealthy long-term situation. But, you, you know, years ago, women couldn't work. They were completely unable to support themselves. And so marriage for them or divorce was like really off the table. Marriage was a social, and this is, goes really to why it's so taboo. Marriage was a social policy 
because we had a whole half of the population that was not self-supporting. And so what happens to those people? They've literally got to get married or they you know, can't support themselves. They become wards of the state. They had the Catholic church and the convent as an option, but that was it for women. And then the next step, so the expectation is you're going to get married and your family arranged that. Even in Europe, people don't realize that marriage was not a love situation at all. It was a political, social, or financial arrangement where the daughter was the bargaining chip in a contract between families. So people had all of that. Once you were kind of bargained away, and that's why they literally say in, in the traditional marriage ceremony, like, who gives this woman? Because the father is giving the woman into that contract. And from there, the man is now stuck. He's got this obligation to support this person who would be destitute. And the woman has no options whatsoever. So as life changed and we got into the 1900s, not even the 1800s, but as we got into the mid 1900s and women started to have options, that's when you see the divorce rates really skyrocket. Yeah. Yeah. That's super, it's super interesting. Also because I feel like that today we look at it from a woman perspective because I'm a woman and I'm passionate about women's empowerment. But when we think about it, just what you're saying, it's not just about the woman. The man was involved in this trap to have like, and having this like pressure to have to be in the relationship because you have to support the woman because otherwise what's going to happen to her, right? So I feel like, I mean, luckily where we are today kind of frees the two people from this obligation. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Those expectations, especially on the man's part, I see so many marriages so many of my clients come to me at, with a with a marriage that is ending and I don't want to use the word failed marriage ever because what I see is that people really never want to be in this place right it is taboo nobody wants to be divorced and they come to me when they really recognize there's no other options but the man or the you know the traditional breadwinner role whoever that might be they come with such a feeling of failure and we're really overcoming that. That's part of why the process is so toxic and awful because they internalize, like I had this job to support my family and he was working his tail off in 90% of the cases that I see, it's almost they're working too much and that's part of the problem in the relationship. But they really have this social conditioning, like the, that is their job as a husband and a father is to work their tail off. And they are not taught as young men that marriage really is a, an emotional contract and connection as much as any sort of financial arrangement. And then so the women end up feeling really empty because they're not getting that emotional connection that they want. But the men are really always devastated because they're internalizing this failure. And also I've come to understand they have this incredible fear of being perceived as a failure and by their peer group, by their society around them. So we can manage all of that and really have an open conversation about like, no, you didn't fail. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a conversation that we need to have. And I want to get more into it. But first, I want to go back in time again for a second, yeah. because 
during our introduction call, you kind of told me a little bit about the history you were telling a little bit before, but can you tell us a little more of like, when did actual women, sorry, like asking or having the ability to divorce, how did it come about? Why is this a women's rights issue too, basically? Oh my gosh. It's such a women's rights issue. I have a book right here. It's called The Woman They Could Not Silence. It's by Kate Moore. I think every girl and woman on the planet should read it because it's really talking about, it's set in the 1860s in the United States, but it's really highlighting how even up until the 1860s in a country like the United States, a woman could not get divorced. And the husband, when you got married, you gave literally your identity became merged in your husband's. And so you didn't have the right to contract. You didn't have the right to own property in your name. You didn't have the right to your own bank account. Everything literally had to go through your husband. And that began to change. You know, in Europe, the rules around divorce were sort of similar. Actually, Europe and England and France made divorce legal a couple of decades before the United States did. But in all of those countries, it was still this... and your your listeners might be familiar with it, this idea of a fault-based divorce where it was legal now, but you had to literally accuse your spouse of something really awful, some sort of abuse, some sort of infidelity. And that's, again, also that mentality is why the divorce process got so toxic and ugly. Because if someone wanted a divorce, they were literally accusing you of something awful and they had to actually prove it in court. And so women got the right to divorce in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, but they still had to go through this incredibly toxic process where they had to prove their spouse was literally like an awful person. In this book, the the one that I'm referring to, it was sort of the opposite. The husband didn't want a divorce, but he accused his spouse of being Um, mentally unstable and had her put in an institution because she started to speak up and like speak her mind. And, but the thing was, is that anybody who did that, any woman who was raised properly, that was literally taken as a sign of mental instability. If you questioned your husband, like that's how deep the social conditioning for women was like, we are to be seen and not heard. And we're, you know, meek and obedient to our spouses. Then in the 1900s, when we had no-fault divorce coming in, and again, in the United States, the where I am in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, we did not have no-fault divorce until the 1980s. And the first no-fault divorce statute was in California in the 1960s. So this is all still relatively very new, this idea of irreconcilable differences that people might have heard of. But Before then, women literally had, you had the legal right to get divorced, but practically speaking, accomplishing that was much more difficult. So the no-fault statutes did give us some freedom, but by the time you get to the 1960s and 1980s, our social programming about how taboo and awful this is and the meaning behind divorce has been set for generations. Yeah. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, when women get married, they take their husband's last name, for example. Mm -hmm. And no one really talked about it for a very long time and how 
actually that was because you literally for so many years became property of someone else. I'm Jewish and in, in Jewish marriages, you actually, so like a tradition and many people don't do it anymore, but tradition says that you're supposed to write a, a marriage contract, which is called the tuba, where basically you sign off. You're actually buying with a number the person you're marrying. Like the man is actually buying the woman, right? And and actually in Hebrew, which is really interesting, I think a lot of the people, because I've lived in Israel for four and a half years, but in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for husband is actually my owner. And then people actually now are changing it with my partner and they don't want to say it anymore. But Wait. again, part of the culture that actually the word for my husband is my owner. That's, that is fascinating. I did not know that. I did. My ex-husband is Jewish as well. And so I did sign the ketubah and you're right. It's like literally a contract, but people don't, we, 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 you know, we get excited about the tradition and we've always done it that way. And very rarely do people think about the why or, you know, what does this mean? But that is very interesting trivia about the word husband that I did not know. I love it. Yeah. So people are like are kind of trying not to use the word anymore because it's extremely patriarchal and problematic in so many ways. Yes. Um, and obviously the whole like thing of like, oh, why are women now don't want to change their last names anymore? Well, it's it's not just because, right? It's, right. It's because for so long we're literally demanded to give up your identity. I think so much of what marriage is today too, we come in with these expectations and I tell my clients, like if there's any silver lining to divorce, and I think there's potentially several, but definitely one of the biggest silver linings is that people who have really lost their identity to, you know, being the breadwinner or I'm exhausted keeping all the balls in the air as the primary caregiver, now have an opportunity to really rediscover themselves. And I think if it's done with compassion and really recognizing that marriage evolving out of it isn't a failure, but it literally is a next chapter in your life, you can really support each other in being healthy and happy. But I think when young people come into marriage, they kind of have this expectation that they're giving up a piece of their identity. And with the benefit of age, I really come to think that the healthiest, happiest relationships are the ones where you support each other in your individual identities, right? And then you you both are thriving and you've got this partner who supports you and loves you and really wants what you want for yourself as well. Yeah, absolutely. But also just as you were saying, like as young people think that marriage is forever as well, because that's what, how we grew up, right? Like I grew up with Cinderella and the happily ever after. And that idea that like, you know, marriage is kind of where you peak. And literally since like day zero, that's what they feed us. Right. With, right? And that's what I was going to say. This goes, this dovetails, your next episode should be about, you know, polyamorous relationships. Is that because the, the, it dovetails exactly into that, right? Like, you know, and the bigger, bigger, like sociological questions that I can't really answer, but like, are humans designed to be monogamous forever? Or like, is it what, you know, as in our natural state, would that be what happens? I don't know. But 
I do know that ongoing, like extending life expectancies also had a big part. You know, women, you might have been married forever, quote unquote, when you got married, but your husband would have, you know, could have been dead at 42, right? And then you would have had many husbands and each one of those subsequent marriages would have been based on like your inheritance, what property did you inherit and those sorts of things as you merged with the next person for really financial reasons. And that was women's biggest concern, like a single woman we, we didn't even talk about the witchcraft and how that like the, they also had the danger. If you weren't a nun, you weren't married that those single women, the ones who were trying to be self-supporting by being midwives or whatever, those were the ones who were getting burned at the stake. It's a whole other conversation about like our sexual taboos and the shame we have around our sexuality. It goes mm-hmm. all back to that. But yeah, like is monogamy a, a thing that is even fair to expect of ourselves. And I personally struggle with that myself in, t- in terms of, you know, what I, if I could choose anything, what would I choose? You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is a very interesting topic and I will talk about it. Right. Somehow I'm actually yeah. talking a person that is a swinger and also talks a little bit about opening up the marriage but yeah, I mean, and, and as you were talking about the stigma around women who are not married, I'm thinking also about the stigma about the women who don't have kids, for example. Right. And what about those? Those are, or I remember, I don't remember where I read that, but like that one of the good reasons that a man could force a woman or the few reasons why the other way around could happen was what if the woman can have kids, right? What yes. if she have kids? And, that has been like always a like kind of the legit cues to use to, well, we can divorce, right? Absolutely. That is still, and, and it's astounding. I always tell people when they change the walls to no fault, they change like basically the title on the statute, but they didn't change the process for divorce, how it goes. They didn't make it more family centered and, you know, recognizing that this is nobody's fault. We're going to do this as calmly as we can. They also didn't change the rules for annulment, which you might have heard of an annulment, like in the Catholic Church, they, you can request an annulment, which is saying that we literally never got married, Mm -hmm. but there's also like a civil, like a legal government version of annulment. And even in, in the Catholic Church and in the government version, the inability to have children is one of the reasons that you could get an annulment for unlike, as you said, on both sides. And that's again, also because, and this is, makes me like a little bit uncomfortable myself. This is why they would marry off. I'm reading a book right now where the husband's 42 and wife is 15, but his job is to make money. Her job is to have children. And if she couldn't do that, then the contract that was like a fundamental condition that would like invalidate the contract. I have a question for you. So how did you kind of go through your phase of divorce? And I, I don't know if you felt like that you failed initially in your divorce or were already like, oh, this is better for both of us and for the kids. And for yeah. But was there a shift for you that kind of then make you say, oh, actually, this is better for everybody and I shouldn't feel ashamed. I should actually feel great. Right. Kind of. Yeah. 
I really did feel like, I think a lot of women feel this way. By the time I was getting divorced about eight years ago, I had been married 15 years and I really felt like, and this happens with so many couples, it, the marriage ending was because I wanted something different. My husband wasn't able to to give it to me. He was struggling with some mental health issues. And so he wasn't able to be a supportive partner. And I was feeling so lonely in my marriage. I'm like in my house full of people and I feel completely invisible. It became really a sad situation for me. And when I realized, hey, I'm actually happier when I'm out by myself or when I'm in the house by myself because I don't have this expectation of connection that I'm not getting. And so it became obvious to me that being single and being happy with myself and in my surroundings was a better emotional situation for me than being in a house full of people where I felt invisible. And, you know, and I think invisible is the best word for it. I'm trying like this incredible loneliness, this incredible, like always trying to reach him and reaching for connection that's never coming. And so that was it, it for me. It, and I think for a lot of women, it really is a moment of saying, you know what? I, I need to stand up for myself. I can't live the rest of my life this way. I was only in my early forties. And so I just decided that as hard as I knew it would be for the the kids, that two happy and healthy parents are better than one household where things are not good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people and women can relate to that because I hear this all the time. And again, people go back to the, the taboo. They're like, oh, but maybe I should stay in this marriage for the kids, for this and that. And then people just don't realize that sometimes, as you said, two happy adults separately are better yeah. than one unhappy household. Yeah. And if we are starting to have this conversation, I think like people need to think bigger that, you know, what are you modeling for your kids? If we are going to get married, and I do love the idea of marriage and that partnership. I'm not anti-marriage in any way, but if we're going to do that, don't you want your child to be in a marriage where they literally do feel cherished by the other person? Like that, those parts of the wedding vows, I really like admire, you know, make that person feel cherished and supported. And if you're not modeling that for them in your relationship, then you're like kind of dooming this cycle to continue to repeat where they don't have the expectations for themselves of what a happy and healthy relationship looks like. And as a divorce attorney, and since like, this is your job. Yeah. What do you do basically for the women that come to you? When People come to me, I do like what I call coaching for clients who are dealing with really, maybe they are in a really toxic divorce process and they're trying to navigate somebody who's falling more on the, and I do struggle with narcissism, I think might be an overused term, but I know that so many women come to me for whatever reason, by the time your marriage is ending, the communication patterns are so toxic to both of you. It feels like an extremely emotionally abusive situation. So I help women who just want individual coaching with that process of setting boundaries and really that journey of self-discovery for themselves, that giving themselves permission to put themselves first and heal a little bit. The main part of my business is taking clients who 
to help both sides of the couple and really start with a little bit of this education so that they can kind of accept that we can move forward with compassion and really appreciation for each other, appreciation for each other's contributions, and also the ongoing role that you're going to play in each other's lives for being grandparents, being you know co-parents. And so I help clients move through the process without hiring individual lawyers who are going to kind of try and suck them into the traditional toxic system. Clients who are interested in and can say, we know we're not healthy in this situation. We want to evolve it into two households. How do we even do that? I guide them through that process and I give them all the education they need so that they're still making correct decisions, decisions that are really fair for the entire family, but it's a much more family-centered approach. And I tell them to change the vocabulary all the way through. Like you're not putting in place a custody arrangement. It's a co-parenting system for your family. It's not a divorced household or a failed marriage. It's a two-household family. And really reframe the process so they can feel really proud of themselves when they get to the other side. Yeah, super, super important. I've been hearing actually this word for a while now that is conscious uncoupling and that is that a lot of people are more and more talking about it and, and I don't want to necessarily say successfully implementing it but maybe people are just trying a different way of separating without the need to be ugly by default. I think well conscious uncoupling the, the book was written about a decade ago and right. it really is it was fabulous because it really I think started the conversation like you, why do we just assume it's got to be ugly and you know we assume that because of all of this social conditioning that we've been talking about all of the subliminal messages about being a failure that are internalized on both sides but as yeah, you know, I do love the point of history where we are in human history, where we recognize that like love comes in all shapes and forms and families can literally be chosen. It is not the, you know, your family is what you make of it. And I think it's really freeing people to have this conversation a little bit more. Like I really care about my husband, but I'm not in love with him in the way I want to be. And so he deserves to be happy and find his person. And so do I. So we're going to do this a little bit differently and transition into two households in a way that doesn't traumatize ourselves or more importantly, I think, traumatize our kids. They, yeah. And they're also part of the picture. Yeah. <laughs> and the kids, that's what I very, and this is 1000% true. That's the thing, 1000% that I really come to believe it's not the fact that your parents are divorced that is the problem, you know, that causes anxiety and issues potentially as the children age. It's the way they got divorced. It's the way they treat each other during and after the divorce that is the problem. And so if we can soften that and take some of the stigma out of it, take the accusation, I call it the blame game, out of the divorce process, everybody is much happier and more secure after. It sounds logical, but 
I mean, I guess it, it is not for so many people. I have a question. When women especially come to you, because I'm interested in that, what do they mostly struggle with? Is there anything like as a pattern or something that you've seen repeating over and over again that women really struggle with? Right. Well, when they come to me, I, I always say they're universally absolutely exhausted. And then they're struggling with this feeling where they know that they want a divorce and then the incredible guilt that comes with that. Women, I don't think struggle with the shame of divorce. I think the shame piece is the is more male. They struggle with the shame of being sort of accused subliminally, whatever. They're perceiving it as an accusation of failure. So they struggle with that. The woman has this incredible guilt. Almost 100% of the people who come to me are women to start the divorce process. And at least na nationwide in the United States, 85% of divorces are filed by women. And I think they, it's one of the blessings, or one of the curses or downsides of like women's liberation or the, is that we are now exhausted because we have the right to go out and support, help support the family. And we do, but the gender roles haven't shifted very much within the home. And all of the studies show that women are still doing the vast majority of the logistical work in the household, all of the child rearing. And so they come to the situation where they're just exhausted. And so many of my clients say something along these lines, like, if I'm going to be doing this all by myself anyway, I would rather do it without the stress and aggravation of us fighting. So the divorce seems like a, an option for them that will give them actually some peace that <laughs> they can, you know, they're going to be doing it all anyway, but they struggle absolutely with that, that guilt of what am I doing to the kids? And, you know, I don't want to hurt my husband, but I can't go on like this anymore. And I think I was reading articles about what you said, that women are still doing the majority of the free work, right? Yes work, the unseen work, all the work that people don't see that actually women are doing in the households and outside of the households too, and take care right. of kids and everything. And on top of that, on top of that, also working full time. It's true. I do think, and this is like kind of counterintuitive in terms of, you know, w women's empowerment and the, the freedom that women have now to really be anything that they want. But in terms of the happiest marriages, that I see, I think the happiest marriages are the ones where there is a balance where if you can afford to not have both parties working full time and there, again, it's critical that each partner is really supportive of the other. But in terms of like our, fa our family fabric and connection, it's really hard as so many people can relate to when you come home exhausted and then you're still doing that, what I call the second shift of both, you know, a lot of times it is both parents running kids here and there, at least the United States, our lifestyle, a lot of the time has caused marriage to be so unsustainable long-term because of that exhaustion piece that comes in. And we really literally have nothing left to give to our relationships because we have devoted our life to work and then the children. And I think our marriages really suffer because of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, going towards like the end, I guess, one of my questions would be like, what do you wish people understood that they just 
don't. Yeah, I think the absolute biggest thing is that you do not need to have an assumption if you really feel like divorce is your last option, something you have to do. There absolutely should not be an assumption that you need to go out and hire two lawyers and draw these battle lines. And I think it's the vast majority of people's assumptions. And well, I'm changing it. I always say like one family at a time. What I've realized people really need is education about what those decisions need to be within a divorce. And once they feel secure that they have that information, they can look at their circumstances and make common sense decisions for their family. And so that assumption is so toxic so often because the lawyers are operating within the old social paradigm. And once you go out to a lawyer because you feel like, well, that's what everybody, how could I get divorced without a lawyer? I can't be stupid. I have to protect myself. Once you do that, you are really giving away your power and really putting your fate and your family in the hands of a system that just looks at you as a business transaction and as part of a, like, you know, an assembly line process, literally, where they just move the families through. So if people realize that they can get that education without running to two lawyers, that keeping your family out of the system allows you to be super creative, super responsive to the actual circumstances that you are dealing with. You can get divorced much faster, much less expensively, and much less traumatically than you would ever think based on what you've what your friends have gone through. If you were just to like to answer in one short sentence, just two fast questions. What would you say to your younger self that gets married? Oh my gosh. You deserve to be cherished. You're gonna make me cry. Like that's what I I think I just don't. That's what it would be. Absolutely. You deserve to be cherished and cherish your partner. And to your younger self that is getting divorced. You deserve to be happy and you deserve to be cherished. It's the same thing. And, you know, it's everything happens for a reason. And life is a constant evolution where it's constant growth. Regina, thank you so much. I thought it was like absolutely enlightening and beautiful and so, so interesting. And I think the taboo on divorce it's still in Europe and in the U.S. because I lived in the U.S. for a very long time. And I know that in the U.S. is still huge because religion is still huge there mm -hmm. as well. Here it is as well. I think it has so much to do with women empowerment and just the ability to say enough is enough. And I deserve to be happy and cherished. Everybody does. So both sides deserve it. And if they're not fulfilling that, then it is okay to lovingly or compassionately move forward for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is fun. We will share your links down below if anyone interested to know more about your work. Thank you, everybody that's listened to Taboo with Mimi. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Mimi. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.